The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tanya Cordry. Tanya is a passionate leader, passionate about growing businesses and people. She's led amazing teams that focus on delivering amazing experience and exceeding customer expectations all over the globe, building wonderful products with passionate people and curious teams. She's led international expansions in marketing, e-commerce, financial services, across startups, growth, and successful turnaround businesses. She's led teams at companies like the BBC, eBay in its early days, Zopa, and most recently held the Chief Digital Officer role at the Guardian Media Group, overseeing their transformation from print to global information distributor. Today, she serves on boards from Clark Shoes to many more, and consults with many leading organizations. She's seen a lot, led a lot of difficult change, but it all started in the most unique of places. So I actually started life as a journalist, a million miles away from technology. And I started as a journalist for a company called Reed Elsevier. It's a graduate training scheme. But when I reflect, it was the most wonderful training ground because I ended up working on a variety of deeply unsexy magazines. <laughs> so my very first job was on a magazine about road haulage. <laughs> Amazing field. <laughs> but actually, we talk a lot today in software development about really understanding the needs of your customer. Well, being a sort of 22-year-old woman who suddenly had to be writing magazine articles for the nation's road hauliers, you really do have to get to know your customer. And I think that learning has really stayed with me throughout my career. I have to ask about an anecdote from that time. <laughs> Surely there's got to be some great meat pies along the way as well. Ah, well, I think it's rather embarrassing to think about it because it was a sort of different era because this would, I'm going to reveal my age here, but this would have been the sort of late 80s and early 20s, early 90s rather. So you can imagine it was a sort of different world to operate in. I do remember a couple of my favourite things I did was the magazine. I have to try not to smile too much at this point, but the magazine had a very popular annual article where we tested which trucks had the best cabs to sleep in. <laughs> so each member of the magazine, basically we were given a like an enormous lorry and we were taken to a truck stop. We were all in different truck stops and we got to sleep in the truck for the night. Yeah. So there was me, my early 20s. I rocked up at the truck stop and I had this lovely sort of 40-ton Mercedes lorry, given the keys to it, and I just had to spend the night in it, uh, <laughs> which was great, until I actually wanted to sort of, because they had the facilities there, you go, well, I'll go and use the bathroom, maybe get, grab something to eat. And you walk over, and I was, apart from the strippers that were entertaining people in the canteen, 
I was the only woman. So I have to say, I sort of hightailed it and I hid in the truck all night. Apart from there were knocks on the door during the night where there were sort of people who were working their way around the truck. So you're kind of going, oh my God. <laughs> it was an interesting evening because you sort of exposed to something that I'd never been exposed to before. But Well, in terms of customer development stories, this is probably <laughs> one of the more interesting <laughs> ones I've ever heard. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, yeah, no, but it was fantastic. So I started life as a journalist and I did that for several years and I realized that I wasn't wedded to my pen. I enjoyed it. I had ended up being the sort of acting editor of a magazine, but I had funnily enough done an article about people doing MBAs. And in the UK at that time, it was quite an unusual thing to do an MBA, particularly coming from the sort of background I had. But I applied, I got into a place at London Business School, and I decided to do an MBA. And I think that was a real pivotal moment for me because I had grown up in a world where you were sort of divided into art students and science and math students. And I had been very much in the, you're an art student, so you're good at English, go do journalism, etc. And I went off and did the MBA and discovered that I love maths and I was actually quite good at it and all those sort of things. So I had an amazing time, ended up doing a great job at the BBC where I ran the strategy team for news and current affairs. So very different, kept in media. But I think the really big pivotal point happened was the dot-com boom happened. And I had a call one day from a headhunter and there was a company called eToys. Most people won't remember eToys, but it was one of the early giants of the dot-com boom, and it had a spectacular rise and a spectacular fall. No better learning experience than those ones. Exactly. It was amazing. And they said they wanted somebody to come and join the European exec team. They had just bought a company called Baby Center, which if anybody listening has had a child, they probably use Baby Center during their pregnancy. And they wanted to set Baby Center up outside of the US. So they wanted somebody to run Baby Center, be part of the eToys exec team. So they were looking for a native Brit. They wanted somebody who understood content. But being an American firm, they wanted somebody with an MBA. Amazing. I suspect there were very few of us, <laughs> if there was anybody else, <laughs> in the UK that had that criteria at the time, who met the criteria at the time. And it was the most wonderful, wonderful journey for two years where you're thrown into a completely different environment. And talking about unlearning, you just have to sort of unlearn everything you've done, just work in a completely different way. And that way today looks a lot more familiar because you're sort of testing and you're working in small teams and you're getting data about your users. But it was just phenomenal to live through hyperscaling. Well, uh, what's really fascinating, though, and, you know, as I can see as I'm talking to you, you're someone who actively puts themselves in somewhat unfamiliar or uncomfortable or maybe what most people would say is, why are you doing that? They're almost curious as to, because you're sort of going against the grain in some respects. When you're a journalist and you want to start studying mathematics or you're getting involved in technology groups or, you know, and as you said, this isn't today. This is, and you were starting out, you know, so you're going up against many social norms. How do you sort of work your way through that? Because I think, Many people probably don't realize 
the challenges that's involved with when you're trying to do something different and the societal pressures, your peer pressures around you asking you, like, why would you want to do that? Yeah, it's interesting. I've never really spent too long reflecting on it, but a couple of thoughts spring to mind is that one, I think I like being in high paced environments with really fantastic people. And as a result, I seek them out. So I think that's probably one because every place I've worked sort of ticks a box to do with that. I don't think I would be the sort of person who could settle in a company that returns sort of growth of about one, two percent every year. And you're tasked basically with don't muck it up. So I like change. I also, I should say that I don't wish to give the impression that I'm somebody who likes taking enormous risks. Actually, I think with my career, I like what I see as a a safe bet is the wrong word, but every step I felt sure that it would yield good results. So doing an MBA when not many people were doing MBAs, you could see that that was a really key skill set that was going to be more in demand. The same with going and working in technology, joining at the time, I thought eToys was going to be a phenomenal success. Of course, yeah. But even though it wasn't, that was an amazing skill set. And it served me well for many years was that I was somebody in the market who actually had experienced those things when other people had yet to do it. So again, that sounds as if it was rather more calculated than it really was, but it wasn't sort of taking a blind leap into the unknown. But when eToys failed... I just knew that I wanted to stay in that environment. So I joined a company that was little known in the UK at the time called eBay. Never heard of them. No. <laughs> and I was so lucky because I enjoyed myself at Baby Center and eToys phenomenally. And I thought that I'm probably never going to find somewhere that's going to be just as much fun and go through such crazy growth. And eBay was that company. And this time the growth didn't go down. It just kept going up and up and up. Uh, and I think it's probably one of the most perfectly designed business models I think we've ever seen. Yeah, it was incredible. So you learned a lot along the way. But I think one of the real pivotal points for me at eBay was it was fairly early on in my career at eBay. And I ended up working on a project which I worked with a couple of other colleagues in other countries. And we came up with the sort of request to eBay US that we wanted to introduce fixed price selling. So eBay at this time was only auctions. And the US initial response was, that's a crazy idea. It'll cannibalize. It's never going to work. <laughs> It'll cannibalize what we're doing. But good on them. They basically turned around and said, well, Tanya, if you can persuade all the other international countries that they want fixed price selling then we'll do it. We'll give it a go. So now I'm wondering, how did you do it? <laughs> well, luckily for us, there weren't that many other international countries at the time. It'd probably be a lot harder now just because there's so many of them. But actually, every single one of them was really interested in exploring that because we could see that there was potential sellers in the UK who wanted to sell books or dare I say at those times, DVDs and things like that. And they had a very small fixed margin. So they knew the price they wanted to sell them at and they didn't want to take the risk of auctions because that was an unknown quantity at that time. 
And it was amazing because we actually ended up rolling it out. And it was phenomenal because the growth of fixed price selling on eBay was stratospheric. And in those days, obviously, you had roadmaps that were very fixed. And the US had a fixed roadmap that I think probably was two years plus. But within a few days of seeing the results of fixed price selling outside the US, they did what was called a 911 project <laughs> and basically said, oh my God, we need to roll that in the US. And it was a runaway success. And for me, it was incredible because you had been part of these companies that were big brand names that had really got onto the scene very quickly. You were scaling very quickly. But it was the first time that I had been part of a project where in many ways I was the author of the original business plan. We go, oh, goodness me, this has had hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds impact in terms of revenue. And that was just fantastic for me for this point about learning to think big. Yeah, it's super interesting what you're sharing here as well. Like all the things I'm pulling away from these stories is like you're working in this company, a fixed roadmap where no teams just go out there and execute. And yet you have this hunch and you identify this opportunity. And how do you bring stakeholders into that? So it's interesting they supported you, but I'm hearing that you brought some sort of evidence to that conversation or what helped sort of give you the space to do that? I think there were probably two things. There was one, the fact that you could get all the other international countries. So the fact that if it was just one country of many saying they wanted this, the time and cost of having bespoke offering for the UK wouldn't have been worth anybody's time. So I think by having several countries involved, it allowed the idea to be put forward as something that had attraction at scale. Mm. And I'm sure I was very lucky because there was a phenomenal team of people all globally working on it. But I'm sure the folks in the US, as they started working with us to develop it, because most of the software development at that point was in the US, I'm sure they began to see that it was attractive. The other thing that really helped us was that eBay at this moment in time was really becoming enormous. And dare I say, there was this company called Amazon that was sort of floating Never around. Never heard of them either. <laughs> what happened to them? But Amazon had begun talking about introducing their marketplace, which obviously has been very successful oh, as well. Absolutely, right. Uh, I think 30% of their revenue comes from that. Yeah, now. but they were only just talking about it at that point. Yeah. So eBay could see that this might be a really interesting defensive maneuver at the same time. So I think we were lucky that because of Amazon, you had both the appeal of a solution at scale and additional revenue, but you also had something that was rather scary, which could help appeal to people both from the sort of attraction and the fright point of view. Well, you know, and I think you're sharing both sides of that story, right? Like you're very clear on what the opportunity is and giving people a taster of what they can see where the opportunity is. And as we all know, nothing like a little bit of survival anxiety to, to keep us all on edge and start keeping innovating is always a grand hack as well, too, you know? Exactly. So what are some of the other, like you're bringing innovation into companies your entire career, right? Like whether it's eBay, you've done amazing work at you know, Guardian, these sorts of amazing companies where in some ways you're sort of shifting or shaking up an existing paradigm, right? eBay changed a lot of the publishing work when you were in, obviously, when Reed Elsevier and making some 
shakeups in there to bring different ways into the publishing business. And then most recently when you were doing chief digital officer at Guardian, right? These classic businesses where often the editorial group, there's a party in place that sort of runs how the thing works and you're trying to help them see the opportunity of what technology can offer them rather than see it as something that's taking things away from them. I'm always curious about some of your things you had to both learn and unlearn as you went through those, those sort of processes. Yeah, so I think the time at The Guardian's a really interesting experience to reflect on because I came from The Guardian after spending many years working for pure digital companies. And these pure digital companies, particularly I'd say the last few years at eBay, they were run by data. So they were full of people who had worked at top consultancy firms, they had their MBAs, and there wasn't a decision that wasn't made without oodles and oodles of data. And then you go to The Guardian, and that was a very different experience where that was a big unlearning experience because suddenly all the ways that I had spent my life working over the last years where you put forward logical arguments and everybody can see that there's no question of what you do because the data says it. The Guardian didn't quite work like that. And I think it's fair to say that I hope none of my old Guardian colleagues <laughs> sort of, uh, don't mind me saying that, but there were some parts of the Guardian, if you just rocked up with your PowerPoint deck, just the fact you had a PowerPoint deck was probably enough to kind of turn off the audience. I think probably one of the best illustrations of that was that we were obviously looking at how we could completely transform the product portfolio of The Guardian to amplify its journalism around the world. And at that point, we had the URL guardian.co.uk. And we managed to secure a new domain name of theguardian.com. So we wanted to transfer everything over. And as most people may not be aware, is that that sounds like a really simple thing to do. Of course, you, if, you sit there and <laughs> some engineer down in the basement just types the script and redirects something and we're done, right? Yeah, but actually it's phenomenally hard. And what makes it really scary is we live in a world where you start small, you test things, and if they don't work, you just start again. Doing a domain change doesn't work like that because once you flick the switch, there is no going back. And it is a big project. It's everything in many ways that I don't stand for in terms of the ways of working, but it's the only way of doing this type of project. So anyway, we did a piece of strategy work that showed that this was a good thing to do, particularly because we had very large global audiences and places like the US, we couldn't get traction with advertising unless we had a .com URL, even though it didn't really make any difference because we had tried persuading advertisers that we could still identify US audiences with guardian.co.uk, but we weren't getting any traction. So I did what I had previously learned was a good thing to do, is I went with charts and graphs and just showed why this was a good thing to do. And the trouble with doing a domain move is that you don't exactly know what's going to happen. And you do know that your traffic will go down for a period and then it'll go back up. 
And what made this even more unsettling was that we had heard privately that this was probably going to be the largest domain move that the web had ever seen, particularly with something like The Guardian, which had lots of enormous Google juice. So if you got that wrong, you would lose a substantial part of their traffic. Oh, believe me, I made this mistake with changing (laughs) my domain name and some of my blog posts. You just lose indexing on Google. And nobody goes to the second page, just in case anyone's wondering. So anyway, I did all the data piece and I did a presentation to my fellow exec team and they just sort of weren't enthused by it at all. And I can't pretend for one second that this was sort of me being clever. This was more luck. But in a desperate attempt to try and persuade them, I started telling them that doing domain moves was so scary that nobody of us our size had ever attempted to do it before. And there were lots of companies that would be really excited if The Guardian could show the way. And once The Guardian had done it, we'd probably unleash all this pent-up demand because people were too frightened of what would happen to their Google rankings. Now, what's amazing is that I'd been appealing to everybody's head But in reality, the new skill I had to learn at The Guardian was you had to appeal to their heart. And as soon as you tell folks at The Guardian that people won't do something because they're too scared to do it, well, then kind of, well, of course we're going to do it. That's the direction they want to run. Yeah. (laughs) So it was an incredible learning moment for me. And I think taking that going forward is you realize that you don't want to lose the power of the data, but data itself isn't something that people necessarily get inspired about and emotional about. You have to appeal to people's heart as well as their head. Yeah, I think that's such a great point for people to reflect on as well. You're also formulating a well-constructed argument, though, grounded in evidence and data to support the decision, but creating the aspirational vision for where people are trying to go. And I think when you have both those components, when you're either in eBay and you're trying to come up with new innovations to influence your stakeholders as to why they might go after another idea and bring more countries together to do that. Whether you're in an organization like The Guardian, where understanding your sort of internal customer and knowing what's going to help resonate with them, but have the confidence of the data, like the work that you've done to form your opinion, to tell your story is also key. You can't just get up there and tell a great story. I think pairing both is really important. Yeah, yeah. And I think nowadays, I mean, I left The Guardian over three years ago now and starting to do board work. That's also been a period of unlearning because being a non-exec director or a member of a board of advisors, your role is very different from when you're an executive. Oh, yes, I know this one. All right. (laughs) And again, you have to go through a rather painful period of unlearning because you can't just sit there and not that as an executive you kind of sit there and tell people what to do every day I don't wish to be trite about it but you can't as a board member be too directional you have to be more aware of the governance and use more skills around persuasion this resonates massively with me too you know like one of my first ever board positions I felt like oh I'm part of the company now right like I'm a foot soldier in that that company now. And and when I make suggestions, people will pick them up and hopefully use them or execute on them. And, you know, the whole style of helping people make decisions or being able to make action happen from suggestions is, it's very different. You know, like 
it's more like coaching yes. rather than consulting. And you have less ability to actually get in there and do the work in many instances. You're, you're trying to encourage people find the answers for themselves. Yeah. And you're also wrestling, I find, sometimes with fellow board members who are also finding you a bit of a sort of strange new sort of person on the board because boards traditionally haven't had somebody who understands about product and technology. So they're like, what on earth is this person talking about? Now, the great thing is I've had a very warm response wherever I've been, but you're also helping the other board members realise that these are things that companies today need to put front and centre to help with their success. So there's a sort of period of unlearning for my fellow board members just by my presence. Absolutely right. And I think there's a huge amount that has to happen in that space. Everything from being just a very minority group of people that sit in those rooms of what single gender, right through to bringing new technology perspectives and understanding the impacts of that. Again, to pair with these people's skills, right? They are great business accumuli in these rooms. But I think often people don't understand the impact technology can have in both solving those problems and being a hindrance to them as well. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that technology isn't just, as many people interpret it to be, is as an IT project. It goes beyond that. I mean, it's actually technology is the way the company is going to scale and grow, and it touches every single aspect of a company. And uh, I suspect many boards, when they get their first digital or technology product person on the board, they probably don't quite realise that. We see this a lot, even inside companies, because it, it propagates with people in chief technology officer roles as re often reporting to chief financial officers, maybe not even being on the leadership team of some of these companies and then propagating up to board level as well. So, you know, you are someone who's had to the classic analogy, like shape that seat at the table so people understand why it needs to be elevated, why it's a strategic capability, the business what were some of your fun anecdotes of trying to do that at Guardian? In terms of trying to get people to sort of understand how the world was changing. Yeah. And well. just so I think being very interesting to me to observe is that you've got this whole new portfolio of products in the Guardian, right? The industry of publishing, its business model is even challenged. We're relying on putting up the paywall yep. or we need to get the revenue up through advertising or and trying to find new interesting ways of growth that technology can facilitate. What were some of the aha or interesting insights you discovered in that time? I think looking back, what was really interesting was that there are sort of different phases at The Guardian. I think for the first phase, which was probably, let's say, I don't know, a year or so, I think The Guardian probably had no idea quite what it had unleashed in terms of the team that I was looking after. So I was originally given the job. I was already at The Guardian because I was doing a sort of project. And they asked me to step in as the person looking after the product, engineering, data teams, etc. And they just said, well, we'd like you to do this temporarily. And then we're going to start looking to hire somebody permanently. And I was both terrified and excited but I took the very conscious decision that I would really like the job permanently. 
And I took the conscious decision that I'd rather not get the job because I tried to change too much than not get the job because I tried to change too little. That's a great operating principle. Yeah. So I just went hell for leather on changing as much as we could possibly do in that period of time. And I was very fortunate because there were lots of amazing people already in the team, but things like the ways of working weren't quite sort of operating correctly. And there was amazing support in various parts of the organisation as well, which I think were really critical for success. So the first phase where we literally looked at what was the right product strategy, making sure we had the right people in place and making sure we had the right ways of working, we just changed everything. And one of the things that really made a big difference, and it probably (laughs) doesn't sound that exciting maybe, was that I was lucky we got some folks in called AKF Partners and I've subsequently done various projects with them as they come in Europe. And they're a bunch of ex-global CTOs who work with companies and they tend to work on short, sharp projects. And they came in and they basically took a look at our tech stack at The Guardian And very quickly, working with the team, they got the team very enthused around fixing the things that weren't working. And we were living in a world where we were only deploying once every two weeks. When we did that, all the editorial teams had to go down because nothing could be published. It was meant to only take a matter of minutes. When it didn't go well, it suddenly took hours being part of a 24-hour news operation that can't publish. That's not going to work so well for you, I imagine. (laughs) Exactly. But this was a really critical thing because it forced us to confront, and actually not confront in a bad way, but confront with some enthusiasm and a lot of passion to really address some of the sort of core platform issues. And I realised with hindsight why that was such an important thing to do because it allowed the team going forward to work in really amazing ways of working. So it allowed us to sort of, we could suddenly deploy as many times as we want during the day. It allowed us to quickly experiment. It allowed us to measure things and it allowed us to build confidence and comfort around testing things because if you tested something on this page, it didn't mean that this bit of functionality over there fell over. So building that environment from a sort of technology point of view turned out to be a phenomenally great step. Yeah, this is something I would really encourage and advocate to when people are starting their transformation journey. I think they often undervalue or recognize the power of having a technical capability that allows you to work in small batches and to constantly ship paired with a great product discovery strategy of prototyping and testing with customers. You know, that one of the things I talk a lot about is creating a flywheel. Yes. And this idea of, you know, when you can tackle the software deployment problem and build a capability that lets you deploy when you want, it means you can experiment when you want. And when you start to bring your product discovery lens and capability to that technical capability, you really start to spin product teams where they can own problems, they can iterate, they can tackle things. And this is, I think, where the real surprising innovations start to happen because the teams are connected. They own the problem. They're connected with the customer. They can tweak the dials when they want, how they want, and get the data to start making really great decisions. And I think that seems to always be missing with a lot of these 
agile transformations because they just talk process, 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 build teams, but they miss the technology component completely, I find. Yes. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge fan of agile, but agile is a capability. It's not a strategy. And I think too many teams think by just trying to improve ways of working, you'll do enough. But I think when I think about the sort of second phase of The Guardian, I think I had probably got quite comfortable that we were motoring along and changing lots. And there's this sort of moment in time when the organisation suddenly kind of went, what the hell's happening here? I mean, they were excited about lots of the good stuff that was happening. But there's also this recognition that traffic is growing. This team seems to be getting lots of resources and investment. And there was questions of kind of why are they doing this, etc. And I think that's when teams going through legacy transformation need to realise the importance of communication and working cross-functionally. I think with hindsight, we probably didn't do it quite quick enough. So there were a few sort of bumps and bruises where suddenly parts of the organisation were beginning to bristle with some of the stuff that we were doing. But actually, by encouraging other parts of the organisation to get involved and participate, we soon won lots of converts on the way that we were working. A really good example of that would be, we took the decision to redo our website. And not surprisingly, we wanted to do it in a way where we avoided a big bang relaunch. So we wanted to be building something which had lots of small changes. We'd be doing lots of experiments. We'd really put the customer needs front and centre and understand what the customer wanted. And this was quite a different way of working than The Guardian had worked traditionally. Again, to your point about the organisation unlearning, because traditionally, I'm not sure data would have been used much in those sort of projects you would have probably have started with what the hypotheses were internally and not necessarily thought too much about customer needs. And success was often viewed as how many awards you had won because they're huge in that industry. So we then really tested the patience of the organisation because we said we're going to ask for feedback along the way as well. So we're going to be very open and transparent and ask people's feedback so they could see the different things we're working on, the problems we're tackling. We want to hear what our readers have to say. And that was quite a kind of deep breath required by the organisation because the feedback started coming in. I can't remember the exact number, but I think we ended up, ended up with like tens and thousands of pieces of feedback. And when you ask for feedback... Not surprisingly, most of it's negative. Of course, right? <laughs> I, I often joke, you know, like, especially in that industry, right? You get hundreds of ideas a day, right? Yeah. I always joke, you only have to look at the opinion section of a Guardian or New York Times or The Economist. And there's an endless supply of ideas of how you could get better there. And of course, some of them are not necessarily the most complimentary at times. But again, this is super interesting for me, right? Because... This idea of a flywheel, when you get the teams sort of spinning, these product teams that are building stuff, like they're agitating the organization in some respects. They're bumping into other departments and they're probably causing a bit of a ruckus. And I think that's a really important time for organizations. It's because in some organizations, they'll try to kill it because it's agitating. And then as your approach is describing, you saw that as an opportunity to bring people in to the team and have more of a ripple effect, I think, 
as yeah. and make more momentum and make this flywheel even bigger by recognizing you needed cross-functional groups, by getting good with clarifying and communicating what you're doing and why and bringing customer feedback into the equation, not just for the innovation product teams, but really how you're starting to rebuild the whole Guardian site, which is scary. Yeah, but I think I was very lucky that, not surprisingly, somewhere like the Guardian, I know it can be a bit of a Marmite brand, but it's packful of innovative, creative and thoughtful people. So it would be crazy to not try and harness them, actually. But we got all this feedback in. And what was really amazing was that people could see that once we got the feedback, we then communicated back out to users and we'd say, thank you very much for this feedback. Lots of you said you didn't like the font size and therefore we're changing it, blah, blah, blah. Or for example, we might say a lot of you didn't like X change, but we're not going to change it because we still believe this is the right thing to do because of these reasons. So we were super transparent and we found that by that approach, some of the people who were the biggest agitators externally against the changes ended up becoming some of the biggest fans because they understood more why we were doing what we were doing and the problems that we were trying to solve. I just think that's another fantastic hack for people to hear, you know, because helping people feel like they're part of creating the change, even when they are necessarily might be giving negative feedback, but helping them feel like you're hearing what they're saying and you're taking action and actually that they're now part of the story in many ways or journey to build what you're trying to create is a great way to turn people who are adversaries into actual allies of the change. And I think that's a very powerful but very important point I think you're making. Yeah, and to your point about the flywheel, obviously this is very much about the ways of working, but I think the starting point is what's the challenge we're trying to overcome. And The Guardian had a mission they articulated at the time to be the world's leading liberal voice, which we wrestled with because it's sort of being owned by a trust. And that's sort of, it's a sort of very grand vision, but it's hard to sort of make real. But we ended up articulating it in order to make it real in terms of how we're going to measure success. And we ended up suggesting that we should set ourselves a goal on when we would become bigger globally than the New York Times. Nothing like a bit of cross-pond competition, <laughs> huh? Now, I have to confess through my consulting work, I'm probably the first one to tell you that you shouldn't go for vanity metrics. But this was a fascinating metric, and I think it's still fit because of the Guardian's broader role. But everybody internally was so shocked that that was even feasible, that we could overtake the New York Times. But when you looked at the numbers, we could see that we were growing at a much faster rate than them. So we said, actually, let's set ourselves a goal. Let's try and get there quicker than we would do naturally. But being a naturally very bold and ambitious organisation, they sort of relished that. And so that ended up being a sort of wonderful piece of jet propulsion behind all that we were doing. And I don't know what the figures are today. I suspect the New York Times and the Guardian have jostled. And, but before I left the Guardian, we did actually overtake the New York Times globally. Well, again, what I love about this story is you're still bringing data to the equation. 
and you're still painting an aspirational, bold vision out there and knowing your internal customer as well to what's going to inspire the positive behaviors you want. And I think that's really pertinent when you're trying to transform these companies is to still give them a bold vision, but know what you can achieve through the data. But the third part of your transformation, this is the bit I'm interested. You said there were three phases you oh, felt like to the... I think the third phase was very much where you move beyond the sort of communication piece to when you really are trying to work cross-functionally. And that's when you have people from disciplines sitting together, working together, ideating and experimenting together, etc. So at that point, you're really trying to break down the silos. I think with any organisation, it's pretty hard to break down the silos. But I think we did a pretty good job on trying to do some of that. And we embedded ourselves in some of the really, what feels like some of the sort of maybe not so sexy mechanics of a large organisation, but things like the annual budgeting process. You know, we were all over that. Yeah. Uh, Please tell us that, Hack, because everybody is like, that's one of the big challenges everybody faces, right? Even if you're an innovation team and you're starting to make progress, you're starting to like really show a different way of working and you're communicating externally and you're trying to break out of just your team, even your a program of work, and then you hit the budget and then it's all over. Yeah. So how, 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 did, how did you manage to tackle that sort of challenge? So I think anybody who's leading transformation in an organization should make the CFO their best friend. And that's pretty obvious because they're the person who controls the purse strings. But actually, not being flippant about it, I think large organizations in particular, their operational rhythm is often dictated by the finance team. And I think the finance team may not be that familiar with this way of working and the way that software can influence all parts of the organization. But by getting close to them and getting close to things like the annual budget, etc., they can start to see how you can really add value, how you can put different metrics in place that can be more meaningful to the rest of the organization. And it also means that you can avoid any of the sort of disconnect where one part of the organisation is saying they're going to deliver X, but they're relying on some software resource that they conveniently not told anybody about. So you can be very joined up around what's going to happen. And what's fantastic is that by joining into the annual budget, you can start turning the conversation away from what's on the roadmap and the stuff that's going to be delivered to the impact that it's going to have to the business and the financial impact it's going to have on the bottom line. And of course, the finance teams love that. Absolutely, you know. And I think it's a great narrative and story you're really sharing here about how to start laddering up these changes through companies by starting with the teams and getting them delivering frequently and iterating their products, starting then to look at the sort of design around the company and move it to be more cross-functional and collaborative, then right up to the sort of bigger legacy processes that sit around companies like big annual budgeting planning cycles that are big and slow and hard to move and recognizing that that's a place if you really want to break out innovation happening in the company, eventually you're going to have to start to tackle some of those larger processes and help the leaders of those who are very comfortable with their 
operational based metrics or return on investment and cash flow analysis that are all based on business models or products that have lived for a very, very long time. So it makes sense to use the data to predict. But when you're doing innovation activities, trying to find new revenue streams for companies that are online, retail, whatever they might be, you know, you don't have any data. You have to invest to get data to make the next decision. That process to help financial management people understand that you're controlling the risk. It's a systematic approach by thinking big and starting small and making bets. How did you start to show some of that inside these teams? Uh, I think we implemented a very sort of quite a rigorous sort of operating model. We'd be very clear about what our strategy was and what the KPIs were that the team would be delivering. And just to be really clear, there'd be a mix of lead and lag indicators. We'd have some financial ones, but we'd have more customer-led ones so we could see how our customers were feeling, etc. And then we would make sure that those were owned by teams and then the teams, hopefully empowered by the outcomes, would be in charge of working out how to reach it. And we sort of constantly worked and iterated on those because what you thought would happen at the beginning of the year might look quite different to the end of the year. So one of the constant conversations we would have, and I talk with many product and tech teams who have these conversations is that the rest of the company often wants to see a roadmap and they want to see a big one, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. Nice big Gantt chart and what have you. And I think this is one of the really hard unlearning pieces for many large organizations because their experience of technology previously has been of it around sort of traditional IT service department where you do talk about sort of roadmaps and the conversations are often based around cost. Yeah. So you have to help these parts of the organization to realize this is a very different conversation because this is about growth and opportunity and revenue. And it's not a service model because actually some of the most entrepreneurial and creative people in your organization very well may be your engineers, probably are your engineers, in fact. And this pattern is super interesting then as you sort of ladder it up even in your current roles as you're sort of not just in one company, you're being on the boards of multiple companies yeah, and you're trying to introduce the power of both product and technology to, I imagine, many businesses that might be retail, high street. What were some of the fun anecdotes that you had to work through there? Well, it's tough as a board director, actually, because you have a lot of influence, but it's at the same time, it's relatively limited influence. So I think you end up having to be a bit of a board agitator. And you poke the bear a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think somebody once described how they thought my role was, and I quite like the description. They basically said that they'd imagine that everybody would have a conversation and there was a certain range in which the solution was going to be found. They said, I see your role, Tanya, as being actually, you're the one that should be pitching something that's completely out of the range, to which they're all kind of shocked and horrified. But in reality, they end up, even though they're never going to go to the place you're predicting, you will move them further 
by showing them that that's even an option. So you get them out of the safety zone. I hadn't really thought of it that way before, but in many ways, I think that's quite a powerful way of describing the sort of role you have as a board member with the product and technology experience. Well, I think that's great. You know, like you have to challenge people's thinking. And if you tell them to go to the Milky Way, but they end up on the moon, that's progress. And I think there's a lot to be said there. Yeah, it's the same with teams, with the consulting piece is that, you know, often teams, weirdly, they can end up not being quite as bold as they could or should be. So they often need a little bit of help in trying to think more courageously. I totally agree. I see that all the time. In so many ways, we limit our abilities. We have such a linear mindset in terms of what progress looks like, and it drives such incremental thinking. And what I love about technology is it's often exponential. Because the things that look that they're not really going to work and not have an impact and then suddenly the technology might mature or figures itself out and then you have this huge accelerated return. And we see it in so many. And of course, uh, papers are a classic example of that, how quickly the Internet has impacted our lives and changed business models and products and services. And I'm delighted to know that you're out there advocating for these organizations to start to change their ways and live it yourself. So looking forward then, what are you most excited about then at the moment? What are you looking to or feeling like there's opportunities or places that you want to go into next? Oh, well, thinking about myself personally. So there are probably a couple of things. So I think in terms of the sort of board and consulting work, I'm really looking forward to, say, another kind of continuing to do that because it's really exciting seeing inside multiple organisations. What's exciting for me is that over the next year or so, I'll probably start working a lot more with some other consultancies, like the one I mentioned, ACAF Partners, because actually I realise that it's quite fun going in as a consultant, but it can be quite lonely when you're a consultant of one. You're sitting with a company (laughs) of one over here. (laughs) And I've done some projects where you're part of a team looking not just at the product side and the strategy side, but also deeply into the technology. And those things obviously go hand in hand. And, And I think that's going to be a lot of fun where you get the opportunities of learning from lots of exciting people. I'm really excited for our industry as well, because it's the point where a certain way of working has become accepted practice that big change is going to happen. So now lots of companies are realising you ought to be kind of doing things in small units and experimenting a lot, etc. And I don't know what the next thing is, but I have enough grey hair to know that there will be one. And I'm excited because I suspect looking in 2020, I suspect we're going to start seeing a new sort of evolution of what we're doing because there are many companies have still yet to adopt the practices that I know you and I would both advocate strongly for. But I'm sensing we're at the point now it's like, oh, okay, something, is there a new twist in this? And I'm excited to see what that is. Well, I'm excited to be around to see when that happens too. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for sharing your time and and your stories. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you do next with your next Unlearning Moments. Thanks a lot. It's been a great pleasure being here. Thank you.